You ever had a dream so real you woke up in a panic? Anybody else? Yeah. Happened to me again, because it happens frequently, it seems. Uh, kind of runs in our family, crazy dreams. Um, just a few days ago, actually. It's funny that I rarely remember what the dream is, but I just know that I think the whole world changed. And I woke up early, pre-dawn darkness, and thought, <laughs> you know, is, it, is that real? And um, I reached out, was relieved to find Brenda still there beside me. Spirit of revelation, you know. And then um, <laughs> I listened, the house was quiet and stayed quiet. And gradually the adrenaline began to subside and my breathing began to slow. And I thought, okay, okay, just a nightmare. Like, thank God for a nightmare, right? Because that's, that's better than that nightmare being real. And sometimes it seems like the clash of a dream and reality is so powerful, you have a hard time telling the difference between the two. And uh, that's exactly what Pastor John, who writes Revelation to these Christians in the first century, is dealing with. The nightmare is persecution from the Roman Empire. It's coming to these little bands of Christians that he cares about, his church people. And he's trying to give them some good news and to prepare them for the situation. And so, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, we have language that he uses to identify the primary actors. For instance, for Rome or any empire of the world, the word Babylon is the word that he refers to most frequently. And of course, his Jewish audience, those early Christians, they knew a whole lot about what Babylon meant, okay? Old Testament stuff, etc. a big part of their history. Uh, the beast, everybody knows about the beast in the book of Revelation, right? The beast uh, of Babylon is the violence of the empire. The prostitute or the harlot is sometimes called of Babylon is the immorality and the idolatry of Babylon. And then, of course, all of this is fueled with power and authority from the dragon, which is Satan. So these characters of Babylon and the beast and the prostitute and the dragon show up symbolically in John's writing a lot because these Christians have a lot on the line. And he is trying to encourage them not to conform to the ways of the beast but if they don't conform to the ways of the beast, the beast is going to come and devour them. And of course, to anybody's natural eye, it would look like the beast will definitely win that conflict. No question about that. Because Rome, like all of the empires of the world, has the power of bombs and guns and swords and violence. They got everything they need to squash this little band of Jesus followers. You know what the little band of Jesus followers have? Jesus. They get the power of self-sacrificial love like we sang about this morning. How in the world, you tell me, does this ever stand up to all that? That's the dilemma that John knows they face. And so there's a lot on the line, and he writes Revelation to encourage them, hold on, hold on, hold on. And to do that, he gives them a vision of the heavenly reality that they can use to judge the deception of Rome and the empires. These two things, you have to know the reality if you're going to measure the deception of this nightmare, in other words. So, for instance, uh, part of the lie is, if you die, you lose. <laughs> Which, by the way, for Christians is a deception, isn't it? Oh, by the way, the word deception will show up in this book a lot. Like nine times the dragon or Satan is called the deceiver, just in the book of Revelation alone. John wants him to know that that may be your nightmare, but the reality is that good God Almighty, we sang about a couple of weeks ago, I love that new song so much, I can't wait till that one comes back. Good God Almighty and the self-sacrificial love of the Lamb on Calvary have already defeated Satan. 
and Babylon. Amen? That's the good news. It's just that the world's deceived. They don't see that yet. And John doesn't want his Christians to get deceived along with everybody else. So he wants them to remember this is what's happening. Jesus already showed us when you're crucified, you can win. Crucifixion can be the win. Don't fear the lie that death is the end or that death is the worst thing that could happen to you. Don't buy the lie. In fact, Paul says something similar to the Corinthians. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it's the power of God for those of us who are being saved. This looks foolish if you don't know what it's all about, but for those of us who are trusting this, it's everything. Amen? Amen. So revelation is the unveiling of this truth. Revelation is the unveiling of the truth that the decisive battle has already been fought and won by the Lamb on Calvary. Whatever the remaining battle is, it is the battle between truth of that and the deception that would obscure us from seeing it. Between nightmares that we sometimes call reality and the reality of the kingdom of God, which is the most real thing that could possibly be. And so the battle now is to be sure we never forget the truth. That's still the battle, isn't it? The battle between truth and the lies of this world that would obscure us from seeing the truth. That's why today I've got really good news to proclaim to you. In the battle between truth and deception, we embrace the final victory of love on a cross, not cosmic bloodshed by a violent God, willing to appear weak and foolish. We overcome the way he overcomes. And that, my friends, is good news. I want to show you what Revelation has to say about that. We're going to look at some of the battles in Revelation. I just want you to remember that these battles are symbolic battles. This is apocalyptic literature full of symbols and word pictures that are striking and, and attention-grabbing, but these are not literal physical battles. Don't forget, the physical battle was fought on Calvary and has already been won by the Lamb. This is how God fights. This is how God wins. God doesn't make other people bleed. God bleeds for other people. That's what the message of Calvary is. The only question is whether or not God's people will remember that truth when the chips are down especially. Will we hang on to that truth and trust the power of the Lamb, or will we be tempted to trust the power of Babylon and buy into the deception? That's the challenge. That's the battle then and now, okay? Um, and that's the battle that John symbolizes over and over in this book to try to tell these early Christians, don't buy the lie, don't buy the lie, don't buy the lie, okay? I'm going to show you three examples today of the battle between truth and deception and how it plays out. We've already picked up on uh, one of John's writing techniques. Remember, apocalyptic literature. He takes a violent image they would be very familiar with, and then he pairs it with something that looks like it contradicts it, but what it actually does is simply change the meaning of the initial violent image into something else entirely. So he takes something from Babylon or the world, he shows us something from the kingdom of God that changes the way we interpret this entirely, okay? And we saw that in week two, just as a quick refresher, if you missed it, uh, we had the lion and the lamb in week two, remember that? Uh, John is told to expect to see a lion, but when he looks, he sees a little freshly slaughtered lamb. And what we see John do with that is that Jesus is a lion, yes, he just shows up in a lamb-like way. He roars, yes, he just roars with self-sacrificial love. He fights, but he fights by laying down his life for his enemies. This is what it looks like for the lion to show up as a lamb. 
John takes that same technique. He does it throughout the book. I'm going to look at three of them. Uh, how many of you have heard of the 144,000? Anybody familiar with that number? Yeah, if you've been around Scripture much or maybe church or whatever, uh, TV, whatever, you've seen or heard about the 144,000. Let's talk about them. This is the army of the Lamb. We get introduced to them in chapter 7. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. Pause. A little history. The Jews were anticipating that someday an army uh, of 144,000, so that's mostly symbolic, not necessarily literal, but 144,000 Jews would finally show up and violently overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Israel as a sovereign nation. This is something they've anticipated forever. Uh, they would say it as 12,000 troops from each of the 12 tribes, therefore 144,000. John says, you all know this number, I heard the 144,000. But when he looks, he sees something different. He heard the Babylon thing, and he sees a Calvary thing. Look, after this, I what? Is it up there? No. <laughs> Help us out here. After this, I what? Looked, and there was, notice, not 144,000, a great crowd nobody could number. Not just Jews, they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. I'm going to propose that the thing he saw transformed the meaning of the thing he heard. He heard about 144,000 Jews, and remember we said numbers are never just numbers in apocalyptic literature, including Revelation. So they're always a part of the symbology that's showing up here. We all know 12, pretty big Bible number, right? Uh, we already know that there are the famous 12 in the Old Testament is the 12 tribes of Israel. Famous 12 in the New Testament, the 12 apostles of the church, right? We already met in week number two, the 24 elders around the throne of God that John sees. We said those are the 12 uh, tribes, the 12 apostles. It's a symbol of all God's people from the ages Old and New Testament brought together, and, and it's a pretty important symbol. It's also no coincidence that 12 times 12 is... It's the multiplication of the testaments. And 144 times 1,000 is? Yeah, this is basic math, people, right? This is not, not new math, basic math. Um, and 1,000 is a really popular apocalyptic symbol as well. Uh, 1,000 always stands for something innumerable, indefinitely large, indefinitely long. It can't be numbered, can't be measured, or whatever. So John sees an innumerable crowd from every tribe and tongue which is the meaning of the 144,000, a complete, perfect, large group of people who have followed God's ways through the ages, he sees. In other words, God has an army. His army just may not be what you thought. It might be better than you thought. And what Pastor John is communicating to this little band of disciples, meeting in these house churches, knowing that the Roman Empire is coming against them because they're like the little mouse that roared. They're standing up for their faith, but it probably cannot last too long. And they've already seen their brothers and sisters in Christ who have died because of their faith. And they figure the Roman Empire is coming next for them, and they're probably going to die too. And they're probably feeling what any of us would feel, a little afraid and a little alone and a little powerless against the empire. And John gives them this picture to say to them, you are anything but alone. 
Isn't that good news, amen? If you're in that situation, you're part of something so much bigger than you, you're part of a great cloud of witnesses of God's faithful people through the ages. There's a whole army of people who are laying their lives down in love for other people. In fact, the scope of this love revolution is so big, you couldn't possibly imagine or appreciate it in your wildest dreams. Don't forget, you're not alone, they're with you, they're cheering you on, they're gonna help you across the finish line. And you may feel a little weak and foolish right now. And it may be a long time before everybody realizes how victorious you were. But make no mistake about it, you will be victorious in the way of the Lamb. This is what John wants them to know. You know what I think? I think that's still good news. I think God's people in this room right now still need that good news. That in the ongoing battle between truth and deception, we embrace the final victory of love on a cross. That it does not get better than that. Not a cosmic bloodshed by a violent God, willing to appear weak and foolish if we must. (laughs) We overcome the way he overcomes. This is the army of the Lamb. Now, two other quick notes that he does with the military symbology here that they would have noticed right away. Maybe you picked up on it. Did you notice that the army has palm branches, not swords? You know, palm branches are always a symbol of worship in the scripture. What he's saying is this army fights, but they fight by worshiping. What kind of good reminder is that for us or what? We've already done that this morning, right? You know, Scripture says that our battles are not against principalities and powers, are not against flesh and blood, but are against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness. You know how we fight, friends? By worshiping the Lamb. When we get in this room and we sing to the King, this is how God's people fight. We remember the truth of who we are. When we say, you're a good, good father, I know who you am and I know who I am, we're fighting for the truth to stay resident in our hearts for another week. When we do this, it matters. When you leave here and you live out the next 167 hours of your week till we do this again next Sunday, you know how you fight? By living your life as if Jesus has your deepest allegiance and he's the only one worth living and dying for. This is how the people of God fight, by worshiping the Lamb. And John says, y'all are confronting the dragon of the empire. You're, you're confronting the beast of the empire by following the lamb and refusing to conform to the ways of Babylon. And then he describes what their worship sounds like. Look, they sing a new song in front of the throne, in front of the four living creatures, those think angel, angelic host for simplicity today, in front of the elders, all God's people, Old and New Testament. Nobody could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They weren't defiled with women, for these people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes are virgins. Now, that's a little curious, so let's talk about that. Again, Jews would have picked up on this immediately in the first century. Before they would go into battle, Jewish men would abstain from sex with their wives for a day, maybe even a week. Don't forget, first century, this is a very sexist culture. And so they saw women, uh, sex is defiling them, therefore it was women who were defiling them. And coming up right now is a really good amen moment for everybody, especially the guys. Thank God we don't see it that way anymore, amen? Okay, there we go. Thought I'd help you out there. What he's saying with this first century cultural metaphor that we have to work with, because that's, that's when he lived, that's who he was writing to, is purify yourselves for the battle. That's essentially the meaning of it that we have to focus on, okay? And of course, if you're a virgin, you're not just abstaining for a day or a week. That's like completely pure, right? So he's saying these people, these 144,000, 
Do not engage with the ways of the prostitute in the immorality and idolatry of the empire. They're the only ones who can sing the song of the Lamb's victory for the same reason that the Lamb was the only one who could open the scroll that was in God's right hand we saw in week number two. The Lamb could open the scroll to reveal the character of God because the Lamb was the only one who had the character of God. And what John is basically saying here is God's people are the only ones who can sing this song because they're the only ones following the song. When you follow the song, you're able to sing that song out of who you really are, and it becomes worship to the Lamb. You see, Babylon has a song as well. The way of the world is, just be sure you're the one doing the killing. That way you don't have to die. (laughs) And these people are saying, even if I die, I can triumph in my death. Death can even be part of the victory because I'm following the Lord Jesus who conquered death on Calvary. Amen? People who trust in lamb power rather than lion power are the only people who can sing and celebrate something that looks foolish and weak to everybody else. (laughs) Says that makes no sense at all. You think this is going to win, really? (laughs) What? But God's people can sing to the king because we know what this is all about. One more note about the army of the lamb. Okay, this is our first. We have two more violent symbols. An elder in the throne room approaches John and says, these 144,000 have come out of great hardship. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the lamb's blood. Quick history moment again. For Jews to be splattered with blood made you ceremonially unclean. If you came back from a bloody battle, you would have to go through a purification process before you could re-enter society. They all know this. John takes that very familiar symbol about washing the blood of your enemies off of you And he subverts it to show that they're not washing the blood of their enemies off of their robes. They're washing the blood of the captain onto their robes. Well, that's a little twist in the story. That's not what I thought. And they're not washing their clothes after the battle. They're washing their clothes before the battle, which again is John's ingenious way of saying the battle has already been fought and already been won at Calvary. We're cleansed by the blood, and we're not just cleansed by the blood. We participate in the blood by living in the way of Calvary. We live lives of love, that's who we are. This theme runs throughout the book. We're only doing six weeks of this series, so we can only dip into it a little bit. I'll show you one more place though, real quickly. Uh, Chapter 12 says, they gained the victory over him on account of the blood of the lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives did not make them afraid to die. You gotta admit that's pretty amazing. And this is his first violent image turned on its head. Everybody listen. We are God's people and we are an army. We're just not like the world's army. We fight, we just don't fight like the world fights. Rather than kill our foes and shed their blood, we do the bleeding for others. We wash people's feet, we lay down our lives in love for them, we serve them and we meet their needs and we know this is how God's people win. Self-sacrificial Love is the winning game, okay? That's our first image. In the battle between truth and deception, we embrace a final victory of love on a cross, not cosmic bloodshed by a violent God, willing to appear weak and foolish if we have to. We overcome the way he overcomes, and that's good news. Now, I'm gonna give you two more, okay? And I just had to pin the, uh, whittle this way down to only give you three. Uh, this is the densest message of the series. So just as a quick 
little mention here. Hang with me for a few more minutes, and we're going to cover a couple of things I think that'll be helpful. You've seen now what, what John does. A violent image with a contradictory image to change the meaning of the original image. He's going to do it again. How many of you have heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Oh, that's a big one, right? Yeah, this big epic end times battle. It's described in Revelation 19. Jesus wore a robe dyed with blood, and his name was called the Word of God. Heaven's armies, wearing fine linen that was white and pure, were following him on, of course, white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword he will use to strike down the nations. Now, at first glance, admittedly, this looks like some kind of bloody massacre is getting ready to take place. But don't forget, we're on to Pastor John now. He takes a violent image, and he's going to use it in a nonviolent way. Does he leave us any clues on this one? I think he does. First of all, how about a warrior coming home from battle soaked in blood? Very common symbol in apocalyptic literature of that time. Even in the Old Testament, it's used to describe God by people who were right and that God fights and that he wins. They just didn't know the way God fights and wins because Jesus hadn't revealed God yet, as he did later on Calvary. We know now. We know God looks exactly like Jesus. Notice Jesus is a warrior who's soaked in blood before he goes into the battle. He's not soaked in the blood of people whose blood he shed. He's soaked in his own blood by letting them shed his blood. The army riding behind him are clean because they're washed in that blood, and they're not carrying swords as they go into battle. They're laying down their lives to overcome the same way he overcomes. The important takeaway here is that this is not an actual physical battle. I'll say it again. This is a theme. We're preaching themes. The theme of Revelation is a physical battle has been fought. It has been won. It is the battle on Calvary of the ages where the Lamb has been sacrificed and won the victory for all time against evil. This is the real battle. Everything else in the book of Revelation is manifesting that or unveiling it so we never forget this is where all the action took place. John says, I want to remind you about the good news of Jesus. So everything keeps coming back to Jesus. Now, we didn't read this because we don't have time to read it all. Uh, you're going to want lunch here in a few minutes. But if you go home and read right before this passage, you will, and, and the outlines, by the way, are all available to download on the app, including the reading list that we're encouraging you to read along if you really want to dig into this stuff. Right before this, we're told that they're celebrating the victory of the Lamb who's already overcome. If this is about a battle in the future, how could they already be celebrating the victory? I'm proposing that they're celebrating the victory because the battle it's referring to has already been won. Notice that the sword Jesus has is coming out of his mouth. That's because the weapon is the word of truth that slays the lies that are deceiving the nations, not literal nations, nations that are in bondage to deception. That's what he's showing us here. We're back to the same theme that we started with, that the battles in Revelation are the battles between truth and a lie, between what's really real and what often passes for real. The kingdom of God, where things are really real, and the kingdoms of this world, the Babylons we all live in temporarily, that's what Revelation is showing us. The secret of the scroll that the lamb takes out of God's right hand is the secret of Calvary, which is the secret of God's character, which is the secret of revelation that keeps playing out over and over and over. Here it is, friends. Look up here. Don't miss this. What looks foolish and weak 
to the world is actually strength and victory and power in the kingdom of good God Almighty, self-sacrificial love of the Lamb we see in Jesus. That's what Revelation bears out over and over. That's why we said it's good and beautiful and true. It's good news, not scary news, okay? Can we do one more? The answer is? Okay, just one more. How about the most graphic violent image in Revelation? Sometimes called the winepress of judgment in Revelation 14. Let's talk about judgment for a minute because it's a really big idea. Still another angel who has power over fire came out from the altar, said in a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle to cut the clusters in the vineyard of the earth because its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle into the earth and cut the vineyard of the earth and he put what he reaped into the great winepress of God's passionate anger. And then the winepress was trampled outside the city. The blood came out of the winepress as high as the horse's bridles for how far? Almost 200 miles. By the way, it might help to know this is a common apocalyptic image in literature of that time that's from this same genre. It is not unique to the book of Revelation. But this picture says blood would flow, I don't know, five feet deep from here to Nashville, Tennessee. Or from here to almost Little Rock, Arkansas. That's a lot of blood, right? I can barely stand blood whenever I cut my finger. I'd be in real trouble in this bloodbath. Now, can you take that literally? You can, and some people do, and, and that's fine if that's what you choose to do. Just don't forget that if you're going to take that literally, that's a really big image to wrestle with. There's a lot there to say, I'm going to have to believe that an angel is literally going to come and gather up all of the sinners of the world and put them in a vat so that Jesus can crush them all like grapes, and he will create a literal 200-mile ocean of blood that's five foot deep. How many sinners do you think that's going to take? How many millions of people will it take to make that kind of a bloodbath? You know what I think is an even better question to ask? Is how is a Jesus who pulls that off anything like the Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who said, love your enemies, do good to those who despise you, turn the other cheek, and eventually proved it by laying down his own life for his enemies at the hand of his enemies. I said to you in week one or two, I think, one way that you might have a clue that you need to work with your interpretation of Revelation is if you read Revelation and you find a very different Jesus than you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it might be a clue that you still have some work left to do. Now, what we're trying to do is to say, what if John, in this apocalyptic account full of all kinds of powerful symbols and imagery, what if he's doing something different with that image? If we're always looking for a lamb and not a lion, maybe this is another one of those things that's not what you thought if you first glance at it. I'll point out two or three clues, okay? And then you can go home and read some of the other stuff, dig into the scripture or whatever, come back the next two weeks, because remember it's a series, so we're gonna keep adding a layer a week that really helps, I think, with clarity. Notice first, the grapes are gathered because they're ripe. Nothing says that they're wicked. Second thing you should notice if you read through the whole book of Revelation is that people who are being judged are frequently made to drink blood. They drink the blood of the crushed. They're not the ones who are being crushed. Okay, now remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's all full of all kinds of symbols, all right? Here's one example, Revelation 16. You are just, Holy One, who is and was, because you've given these judgments. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets. 
the martyrs, and you've given them the blood to drink. They deserve it. You see that kind of language over and over in Revelation, that the judgment is in the drinking, not in the crushing. Can we just admit this together, because don't hear what I'm not saying? It's no walk in the park to be crushed like Jesus, amen? You ever had your heart crushed by somebody? You ever loved somebody who didn't love you back? You ever laid your life down for somebody who trampled that, crushed you in the process? That's no walk in the park. But you're not being judged by it. This image of drinking juice is John's ingenious way of saying, the sin of people comes back on them. The blood you shed is the blood you end up drinking. He takes a previously violent image, they would all know, and he turns it upside down to reveal that God and his people aren't the ones who are doing the crushing, they're the ones who are being crushed. Judgment doesn't come on those who are crushed, it comes on those who have to drink the blood of the crushed. Again, symbology here. The evil you sow, everybody help me with this, is the evil you? That's basically what it's saying. I don't have to convince anybody of any age in this room, probably, that evil and rebellion and violence are self-destructive by nature, amen? When you begin to engage in evil, it always comes back to bite you in the end. Isn't that right? That's the only thing that's being pointed out here. It's self-destructive just by you participating in it. Revelation 17 says that uh, the prostitute, who symbolizes the immorality and idolatry of the empire, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Those who are staying faithful, I saw her drunk with their blood. If drinking blood is the punishment for shedding blood, John's showing us she's intoxicated with the very thing that's about to do her in. That's what he's saying. This isn't even just in Revelation. Let's drop back into Psalm 7 real quickly. Whoever's pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they've made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Or as we might say it, if you live by the sword, then you what? See, we know this stuff already. John's just reminding them of this truth, that the judgment for sin, hang with me here, such an important big idea, the judgment for sin is built into the sin. Judgment isn't God doing violence. God is letting violence do itself in. I'm going to close this part of the message with the most beautiful picture of all to illustrate that. Let's go back to this again. Is that what happens on Calvary? Satan comes along, and in his evil, he orchestrates a crucifixion to take out the Son of God, and it turns out that very crucifixion is what does him in, right? This was the, Satan self-destructs as the outcome of his own evil act. Here's how Paul says it to the Colossians. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed. With its requirements that worked against us, Jesus canceled it by nailing it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, I love this picture, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. Judgment day. Oh, there will be a judgment day. Judgment day, or the day of the Lord, is simply going to be the day of ultimate (laughs) truth-telling. 
Judgment day is the day when the veil will be completely pulled back and we will see God for the first time ever as he really is in all the stunning beauty of self-sacrificial love. We will be jaw-droppingly astonished at how beautiful he is. And he won't be the only one there in all of his glory. We'll be there as well. And the truth will be fully known about us in the presence of the God who is true. All the deception and all the darkness and all the lies that have hidden the truth for all the ages will finally be pulled back. And you might say reality will be really real for the very first time. Everything will be clear as it is. You know what I'm going to propose to you? That's actually really good news. That's actually going to be a wonderful day. How many of you taught your kids not to lie? How many of your kids lied anyway? <laughs> Just like you did with your parents, right? <laughs> but we all hate lies, don't we? We all love the truth. We all know at the end of the day, the truth matters a lot. It, the truth is beautiful. Even when it hurts, it's beautiful because it's true. And someday, judgment day, the truth will reign supreme and the battle between truth and deception will be retired forever. The victory will be completely won and everything will be clear and truth will be finally told and it will be beautiful and good and our hearts will sing because this is still good news, my friends. In the battle between truth and deception and we're still living in it, you're gonna live in it this coming week. We embrace a final victory of love on a cross. We think there's nothing more real than this. <laughs> we do not embrace cosmic bloodshed by a violent God. If we have to feel and appear weak and foolish in the meantime, sign me up. Because we overcome the same way he overcomes the power of love. I got to tell you, in my own battle to wake up to what's real, to look beyond the nightmare sometimes that life can be. I am more determined than ever to trust the power of love. I don't think there's a more powerful force in the universe than the love of God flowing through a community of disciples of Jesus. I don't think there's a more powerful force. I love my country. Most of my life I've been a bit of a political junkie. I'm probably daily informed beyond what I should be <laughs> about current events. I pray. I participate and I vote. But the longer I follow the Lamb, my friend, the more convinced I am that the only way the world will change for good is when God's people are an unstoppable source of his love in the world. It doesn't mean that other stuff doesn't matter. My hope's just not there. My hope's in us. My hope is Jesus in you and in me. And so I've invested my hope solidly in a little band of disciples, just like Pastor John, who will come together as a kingdom outpost of love in our communities and say, God, let us, let us manifest the truth of your love right here in the 573, because I think the church is the hope of the world because Jesus inhabits his church, period. End of the discussion. We live for a time in the empires of this world but it is the kingdom of God that is most real. Um, probably that's also the times I get discouraged the most, <laughs> is if it feels like so many of God's people trust the power of the empire more than the power of the lamb. And I thought that might be a good question just for us to entertain before we go. Which one do you think is more real to you? Babylon or the kingdom of God? I, I sure hope so, buddy. It sure is good news. 
You see, sometimes we can get all caught up in things that are real but very temporary of famine and war and sickness and so forth, and they're real and they're hurtful, but they're part of the deception because eventually at the end of the day, there is the kingdom of God that is riding right along tandem that is full of bounty and health and wisdom and beauty and goodness, and someday soon our king will return, and what's really real will become real for everybody forever. And that, my friends, is the game changer. It's awfully easy to put your trust in the next president of the country. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. Or the next Supreme Court justice. Or if everybody would just watch your favorite source of information, we could all get this world back on track again. (laughs) Or do you really believe that a community of people who learn from Jesus how to love as Jesus and live as Jesus release more power for good into the world than any government or any source of media ever could? (laughs) Which do you really believe? We gave you some books to read along the way. One of them is Reversed Thunder by Eugene Peterson. I love the book. He says, the question every person of faith must face is, do God's love and redemption work in this history in which I live? I'm just going to leave you with that question because I think that's our question. I think if we treat Revelation like it's only a crystal ball giving us a look at the future, we forget that the most power in Revelation is to teach us how to live in the middle of our own Babylon right now, just like John was teaching his congregation back in the first century. That's where the power of this book comes alive. All right? Is that enough to chew on this week? Yes, Brian, let us out of here. (laughs) All right, I guess. There's more goodness, but we'll save it for week uh, number five, all right?